My name is Barb Boylan, and our reading today is out of the book of Genesis, chapter 25, verses 21 to 34. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first, first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Barb. Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you're with us today. If you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. And if you want to kind of get a jump on the morning, you can also uh, put your finger in Romans chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, so we're going to address quite a bit, jump around a little bit today. So if you want to kind of jump ahead and, and see where we're going, you can put your finger there in your Bible. But beginning this morning in Genesis chapter 25. Are we a little tired this morning? Everybody looks a little tired. No coffee, not a lot of noise. All right, that's okay. Uh, it, is good, uh, it is good to be with you. It's good to have you here, and hopefully we can keep your attention throughout the remainder of the morning. So uh, we are continuing on in this series on the patriarchs of Israel, and in particular looking at the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this morning, after spending several weeks looking at the life of Abraham, we dive into this picture into Isaac's family, looking at Abraham's son and his grandsons. And this really is the story of God bringing to fruition his promise to Abraham to make him into a great nation. And the tension that we felt over the last several weeks looking at the promises of God to Abraham and to Sarah and the promise of a child, the promise of, uh, of all of this offspring that was going to be granted to him. Now we're seeing the fruition. We're seeing how these things are playing out. And, and perhaps unsurprisingly, how it plays out is not at all how we would plan it. The way that this story weaves together and the way that it all, uh, the, the way that it all um, is displayed in Scripture is not necessarily what we'd expect. 
But what we find here is that Isaac, who'd grown up witnessing the presence and the privilege and the provision of God for him and his family, in particular his parents, and and even in the provision of his wife, which is a story that we find in a couple of chapters uh, prior to Genesis 25, all of this here is, it, it leads to this particular moment where Isaac finds himself facing the same challenge as his father. He's a 60-year-old man. He's been promised a child. A child to this point in his life has not been granted to him. And, and so Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, are praying for God to deliver on this promise, except what took chapters for us to discover with Abraham really only takes a few verses for us to find here in this text. And it begins in verse 21 by saying this, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Isaac and Rebekah had the same challenge as their parents, but they had learned from Abraham and Sarah's faithfulness, and and more than that, from the faithfulness of God to deliver a child. They've longed to have this child. They've prayed to have this child, but they've been unable in this point in their life to have that child that had been promised. But here, God hears the request of Isaac. He grants a child. Now, notice what happens beginning in verse 22, because the story right off the bat becomes really fascinating. The children struggled within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. There's something so profound in the pregnancy of Rebecca that she knows something unusual must be happening. So much so that what's recorded for us here is that she goes to God and says, can you tell me, God, what's going on? Because you promised a child and you've granted that request and thank you for granting it. In fact, you granted that request doubly. She's expecting twins at this point, but she can tell that there is some sort of internal conflict. Now, whenever stuff like this comes up in Scripture, it's unusual to our experience. It's unexpected in our experience. It's similar to what we find in the New Testament with the birth of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, where upon finding out that her cousin Mary was expecting with Jesus, the the baby inside Elizabeth's womb leapt with joy. That there's actually a spiritual indication in the physical pregnancy of these particular parents. It's an unusual thing for us to think about, but we see it cropping up throughout Scripture. And so she goes to God and said, what is it with this constant conflict between these two? They're not even born yet. They haven't even, they haven't even found a reason to hate each other yet. We were thinking we were going to wait a little bit before we got to this stage in their life. But the answer comes back from God in this moment. There's going to be conflict between these two boys. So much so that their offspring are going to be at war with one another. There's going to be a substantial conflict here, and we're actually told what the cause of this conflict is before they're ever born. It says, the one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. And that simple explanation has far more significance than what we might realize, particularly in our modern context, because as we addressed in the sermons around Abraham, in this culture, your lineage meant everything. It was your identity, it was your value, it determined your social standing, your occupation, it determined who you were most likely to marry, and perhaps most notably, certainly in the case of of these two boys, the birth order was intended to determine who was going to receive what portion of the inheritance. 
It was a given in this culture that the firstborn, particularly the firstborn son, was going to be the one that was going to carry on the name of the family. He was going to be the favored one. He was the eldest male, and as such, he was going to receive the lion's share of the inheritance from his father. He was going to be the next patriarch to lead the family. He was going to be the one that that because of his position in the pecking order had authority and power over everyone else in his family and in their extended family unit, he was going to have far more influence than his younger, his younger siblings. And, and this norm wasn't something that was deviated from. Everyone expected that this norm was going to be followed. So for an elder son to be put in the position to be subservient to his younger sibling was a radical departure. But I want you to note something here. Because what God's doing in this text is not merely prophesying what is going to happen, as if what is going to happen is outside of his control or his will, or was something inevitable that was going to happen. What he's actually giving us here is an indication as to what his sovereign will and intention was his grace that was going to be extended towards Rebecca's younger son. In other words, and follow this, because the whole thread of what we're going to talk about throughout Jacob's life in particular is set into motion right here. The message of God is clear. In my own way and for my own reasons, I choose to bless and to save and to use the unlikely and the overlooked and the forgotten and the objectionable to show my own grace and goodness. God is saying, this is something that I am bringing about in your sons. In other words, listen, it is God alone who graciously calls the lost and saves them to himself. See, God doesn't do things the way that we would choose to do them or the way that we would think to do them. God doesn't, God doesn't look into the annals of, annals of time and say, okay, I'm going to need some person, at least one representative, who's really religious and really obedient and really righteous, who's a person of very high moral character and, and intestinal fortitude, and I'm going to need that person on my team, so I'm going to go ahead and save them, and I'm going to need somebody else who's really strong and, and really strategic, has those executive and administrative skills, because I'm going to need somebody to put together this whole organization so that my plan can work, all right? I found that lady over there. She's going to fill that role. Okay, now I'm going to need a really charismatic speaker, and then I'm going to need somebody who's wealthy to fund this whole operation. As Dave talked about several weeks ago, God is not putting together a team, a kickball team, for instance, based on your individual skills. No, he goes out and he pursues and he chooses and he saves and he uses those whom we absolutely would never expect him to choose. And it's passages like this that prove what we've been talking about. Do you understand that God did not choose you to be his son or his daughter because you're so great and because you bring so much to the table? No, he chose you because he chose you. And I realize that even as I say those words, for for many people when they hear them, there's something internally that just doesn't jive with that. It's an uncomfortable notion for people. But see, God only chooses and calls sinners and liars and losers and hypocrites to himself because sinners and liars and losers and hypocrites are all that there are to choose from. And he does so according to his own perfect, mysterious will. Now, where in the world do I get this idea? Because what I've just said is 
is saying a lot, but where do we actually find this in Scripture? And this is where you can flip to Romans chapter 9. In that text, Paul is addressing God's absolute sovereignty in the election and the salvation of God's people, and he actually uses Jacob and Esau to illustrate his point. So here's what Here's what God Himself is saying through the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 10. When Rebekah had conceived children by our forefather Isaac, listen to these words, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Those are the words of God. They're in quotes in your Bible in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. That's pulled, by the way, if you want to read it from Malachi chapter 1, where God himself says, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Now, wait a minute. Just, Just stop and think about what he just said. It sounds like what you're saying is that is that before these two were ever even born, God chose to love Jacob, but did not extend his saving love to Esau. Well, that's exactly what Paul is saying. And so immediately the response might come back, well, Jonathan, that hardly seems fair. Before they'd even had opportunity to do right or wrong, it doesn't seem fair that before they even entered the world, God would determine to save and love Jacob, but not Esau. Well, Paul actually anticipates that question in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So for many people, the idea of God's predestination and election, which is talked about at length in Scripture, Romans chapter 7 through 9 speak to this idea, Ephesians 1 and 2 speak to this idea. That whole concept to so many people seems very unfair. And the reason it seems unfair is because naturally in our heart of hearts and the way that we operate, when they hear the idea of God's election and salvation of his people, they presume that God is performing some sort of divine quality check. And that as people are coming down the line, God is saying, well, I'm going I'm to choose you to be saved. I'm going to choose you to be unsaved, saved, unsaved. As if mankind starts in a morally neutral position and therefore God is randomly choosing people. But the problem with our natural objection, according to the Apostle Paul, is that mankind does not start from a position of moral neutrality. Mankind's natural disposition, do you understand, is not neutrality, it's rebellion. Our natural starting point is with our fists up in the air at God. Our natural starting point from the moment of our conception is sin. It's what, the, it's what the psalmist writes about in Psalm 58, verse 3, which says, Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they are wayward, spreading lies. David says, In sin my mother conceived me. In other words, what the Bible is saying is that we are sinners both by nature and by choice. You're not a sinner because you sin you sin because you're a sinner. 
our natural inclination towards God because of the inherent sin with which we are born is rebellion against an almighty God. And sin by its very nature is rebellion. It's cosmic treason. It's a declaration that God is not in charge of the universe. He's not in charge of our own lives, but we are in charge of our own lives. We have, we have proverbially kicked God off the throne of our lives so that we could sit in his seat and understand that that sort of action against God is worthy of eternal punishment. We were all destined towards wrath because of our sinful identity and our actions, but according to Romans chapter 9, God determined that he would, out of his own good pleasure and mercy, extend that mercy and grace on whomever it is he chose to extend it. Understand, brother and sister, what Romans chapter 9 is saying. What's fair is that all mankind should suffer eternally because of our rebellion against God. That's what's fair. But thank God, he isn't fair. He's merciful. He does not give us what we deserve for what we've done against him. And so then, the very next question that people naturally ask is this, well, if that's the case, if God is glorified when he extends mercy to people and when he extends forgiveness to people and when he extends grace to people, why doesn't he just save everybody? Whether they want it or not, people want a universalist God, meaning they want a God who just says, it doesn't matter what you've done, I'm going to save you, I'm going to save everybody in the world, whether or not they want it. Why doesn't he just, why doesn't he just do that? And once again, Paul anticipates that question in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make use of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So Paul uses this illustration and he says, imagine that you're somebody who works with pottery, you work with clay. When you sit down at that potter's wheel and you begin to mold something and make something, at no point does the clay get to speak to you and say, why in the world would you choose, you, choose me to, to, to perform this function? Why did you make me a vase when I wanted to be a bowl? No, the clay doesn't have that sort of right. Why? Because the creator has absolute power and absolute control over the creation. And Paul's saying to us here, it is not our job to question the motivations or the decisions of the creator. But, Paul says, by the very fact that God in his goodness shows us mercy, shows us grace, when he shows us that by not pouring out his wrath on us and shows us grace by giving us new life, he demonstrates with incredible power his immeasurable kindness. So the question you may be asking yourself is why in the world did we spend all of that time on this today? Because admittedly, it is a doctrinally deep and heavy idea. So why are we talking about it now? And the reason that I would say is this, because if we were to neglect this truth and jump into the story, 
we might walk away with the idea that the blessing that Jacob received was somehow owed to him, either because of his own, his own cunning and his own wisdom or his own resolve, or because somehow he finagled God into blessing him, or that somehow later in his life Jacob actually got his act together and made himself acceptable to God by pulling some, himself up by his bootstraps and turning his life around. But what Genesis chapter 25 and Romans chapter 9 reveal to us is that before Jacob had even an opportunity to do right or wrong, God set his love on him. And my hope for you is that as you hear that, that it works to serve as a balm in your life. Because if God chose to love and to save Jacob, knowing full well the kind of broken person Jacob was going to be, then you, brother or sister, can rest assured that God's love and care and pursuit of you will not somehow wane or evaporate when you sin and fail. Now let's see how God's word to Rebecca began to bear itself out. Verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. So imagine this. Isaac and Rebekah are 60 years old at this point. They haven't had a child. God miraculously delivers a child to them. They're so excited for the, for the birth of their firstborn children. And the first one is born, and he comes out looking like a Wookiee. Like, that's the description, isn't it? He's hairy from head to toe. Now, I can't even imagine how, how hairy a baby would have to be to earn this title and to be defined by it, but it's so pronounced that his parents actually name him Esau, which literally means hairy. Not the most imaginative name, but they rolled with it. And quite literally, on the heels of Esau comes his little brother. He came out of the womb with his chubby little fingers clamped onto Esau's heel. And Isaac and Rebekah had a sense of the kind of kid he was going to be. This kid is going to be a sneak. He's going to be an instigator. He's going to be a trickster. And so they named him Jacob, which actually means deceiver. Or heel grabber is the literal translation, but it means deceiver. And both of these boys grew into their names. You can see the sort of men they grew up to be very quickly in the very next verse, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter. It's kind of what you'd expect, the boy who's born with a full beard. He's a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Esau is this rough and tumble hunter. He's the guy sitting in a tree stand when it's 15 degrees out waiting for just the right buck to come along. He's a skillful hunter and he and his dad just click. They have everything in common. They get along. Their personalities roll together. They seem to fit like hand in glove and, and we're told that Isaac has this particular love for Esau. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And that language is interesting because what it's actually doing is it's pitting Rebekah and Isaac against each other and Jacob and Esau against each other. That, that Isaac very clearly had his favorite in his oldest son Esau and, and Rebekah, for her part, very clearly had a favorite in her son Jacob. Jacob's this homebody. He might even be a mama's boy, right? 
And the sibling rivalry that develops between them is exacerbated by the fact that their parents have decided to play favorites. Verse 29. How does this all begin to play itself out? Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field. He was out hunting, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Verse 31. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Now here comes Esau, the hunter, who after a long, unprosperous day of hunting returns home empty-handed. He's famished. He's been out all day in the heat or in the cold or whatever it happens to be. He's so hungry, and he walks back into the house, and here's his brother Jacob making this delicious-smelling stew, and he smells it, and he sees it, and immediately he says, Jacob, I've got to have some of that. I'm about to die. Give me some food. And Jacob sees this as an opportunity. He begins to ask the question, well, what's it worth to you? And he proposes this trade. He says, I'll give you the stew, and you give me your birthright. Now, we don't know how old these men are at this point. The the word that's actually used in Hebrew translates to young men, and it may mean that they're anywhere between the ages of 14 and 18 years old. It's potential, potential that they were older than that, but they were certainly old enough to have some understanding of how the world worked. And in this ancient culture, the custom was that the firstborn son was to receive a double portion of the inheritance. That was what the birthright actually was. This is separate, by the way, from the blessing that comes on Isaac's deathbed, which we're going to talk about next week. There's two distinct blessings here, but this birthright was given to the firstborn son, a double portion of the inheritance, whatever it was that Jacob was going to receive, Esau was going to receive twice as much. This was a valuable commodity. And there's precedent for this idea of people selling their birthright. I mean, imagine someone who started a business and the business began to fail and they owe a bunch of money to their creditors. What they could do is they could go out and they could sell their birthright. They could sell their future inheritance that they were going to receive to some entrepreneuring person who had the actual cash money to front them. And they would sell their birthright at a loss in order to get that cash on hand kind of an ancient payday loan. And so Jacob recognizes Esau's impetuousness, his desperation, and he sees this as an opportunity to take advantage of his brother. Verse 32, Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. And even in the way that the author writes this portion of Scripture, you can see the flippant attitude of Esau towards the most substantial promise he had ever received in his life to this point. He says, what's the purpose of this birthright if I'm about to die? Now clearly he's he's speaking here in hyperbole. It's like when your kids come into the house and they say, we have nothing to eat in here. And what they actually mean is, I am too lazy to go make or find my own food. He walks in, clearly there's food in the house. His brother's making a stew right there, but he doesn't have time or patience to make his own dinner. Instead, he says, I'm going to die if I don't eat now. So Jacob makes this stew. He makes Esau make this promise to swear to him, saying, with God as your witness, swear your birthright to me, and Esau swears away his birthright for a bowl of stew. 
And the author says, he went his way, flippant attitude, who cares about this birthright? He despised it. Now here Esau had this promise. And that promise was a symbol of God's provision. It was a symbol of his father's love for him. It was a symbol of his rightful place as the future patriarch of this family. And in a moment of temporary desire, he viewed that promise as nothing. And the author of Hebrews, in chapter 12 of that book, addresses Esau's short-sighted, sinful mentality. And he warns us, as the reader, not to have the same mindset. Here's what he says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. The author says, see to it. He's talking to you and to me. See to it, Christian. Pay attention, brother and sister. Follow the example. Observe what's going on here. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, the question that may come into your mind, if you're like me, is what in the world does sexual immorality have to do with a bowl of stew? These seem like very disparate ideas, but ultimately, here's what he's saying. When he uses that phrase, don't be sexually immoral or unholy, what he's saying is this, don't be so focused on the immediate that you lose sight of the eternal. Don't lose focus on what is most important in your life. Don't lose focus on the future promises of God, on the provision of God, on who God has declared you to be, on your identity in Him, on the promises that He's extended to you, on the birthright that's been granted to you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't be so drawn away by temporary lusts and desires, by momentary fleeting satisfactions, by the pleasures of this world, that you lose sight of what is infinitely more valuable. And the example that he uses here is that of Esau because he's saying Esau in this moment was more concerned about his immediate physical gratification and he was so concerned about it that he cared about it more than the importance of his birthright. He gave up his heritage everything that had come before him, all of his family meaning, everything that had been promised to Abraham. He gave up everything about his heritage, and he gave up everything about his future inheritance, what was ultimately going to belong to him, for momentary pleasure. And the author of Hebrews wisely uses this example of sexual immorality and unholiness because when we understand that concept, it kind of puts into perspective the gravity of this instruction. And here's all you have to do to see that. Look at the life of someone who's lost relationships with their family because they've momentarily indulged in immorality. Sexual promiscuity potentially means that the trust and the intimacy and the joy of marriage is lost in an instant that whatever has been gained through years of faithful dedication and devotion and love and pursuit can be ripped away in a moment. It's to despise the goodness of God. And lest we just pick on someone who's guilty of that particular sin, do you understand that this inherently is what every sin does in the life of the believer? 
It's the idea that Luther talked about when he says that all sin ultimately is idolatry. What you're doing in a moment of sin is you're saying, God, I don't choose you right now. I'm taking you off the throne of my life and I'm gonna worship something else in your place. I care more about my momentary satisfaction. I care more about my momentary well-being. I care more about how I feel about myself, about my momentary pleasures, my momentary joys, my momentary happiness. And understand that God has an incredible, incredible ability to redeem what's broken in our life. He has an incredible ability to restore what we've destroyed, but that doesn't mean that there's not pain that comes along with those decisions. But ultimately, what the author of Hebrews is writing to us and what the example of Jacob and Esau teaches us is that our reason for running from sin is not to garner God's approval for salvation. The reason we run from sin is because to engage in sin is to indulge in the very thing for which Jesus Christ had to die. It's saying in the moment, in the life of a believing Christian, God, I know you love me, and I know Jesus Christ died for my sin, but since you died for my sin, I'm just going to throw another sin onto the pile. In some sense or another, it is to treat the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as inconsequential. And so the author of Hebrews continues in verse 17 of chapter 12, for you know that afterward... When Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. That's a terrifying verse. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is eventually Esau realized what it was he lost. There came a point in time where the consequences of his actions became apparent to him, where the where the weight of what it was that he had given up for that simple bowl of stew became so substantial in his life that he was heartbroken at his own decision to pursue it. But you see that even Esau's pursuit of repentance missed the point in Hebrews chapter 12. See, Esau's repentance was not because he was heartbroken for his sin. He was heartbroken because he wanted the blessing. Do you understand the difference? The difference is this. The difference is the kind of thing that happens when, when a child is found out for their sin and, and they're sad because there's a consequence attached to it. I'm not allowed to play video games. I never would have gone through this if I'd known you were going to do something that drastic. I'm grounded. Had I known I was going to be grounded, I never would have gone through that sort of behavior before. But what, what's being lost in that moment is the realization that when we sin, what is ultimately damaged is an understanding of the relationship that we have. Not that God is any further away from us or that his love for us is any less profound, but that in that moment, ultimately, what you're saying to God is, I'd rather have this other thing than have you. But Esau wasn't sad that he had broken this relationship with his own father. And he wasn't inherently sad for the fact that he had turned away the promises of God. What he was sad that he lost was the stuff. I want the possessions. I want the material blessing. Now the question for you and for me is this. What is it that actually led Esau to exchange the eternal for the immediate? And Hebrews chapter 12 actually gives us a picture into that in verse 15. 
see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, what is that verse actually saying? He's saying this, be striving, brother and sister, to make sure that no one misses the grace of God. What does it mean to miss the grace of God? And commentators are, are not all in agreement as to what this means. Some say that he's arguing here about the importance of the role of grace and salvation. I'm actually not convinced that that's the particular interpretation of verse 15, because I think one of the ways that we see grace play out all throughout the New Testament is to describe the present sustaining power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. So to illustrate that, I'm going to jump to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. If you remember the context, Paul is praying to God, and he says, I have this, this thorn in my side. I have this, this problem I'm experiencing in my life, and God, I'm asking you to remove that thorn from my side. Would you, would you remove what troubles me in my life? Would you remove the difficulty that I'm experiencing? And the answer comes back from God to Paul, and God says this, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. It's what James says in chapter 4, verse 5 of his testament. God gives more grace. Therefore, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So in other words, when the author of Hebrews says you need to take heart and pay attention and see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, I don't think he's talking about the grace by which we are saved. I think he's talking about the daily present grace that carries us through our life. The author is not saying that we must strive for holiness and pursue peace lest we come short of experiencing God's saving and justifying grace. That's already guaranteed through the through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the sufficient, supportive, sustaining, day-by-day grace in which we are enabled to live in accordance with God's will. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't miss that. Receive it. Grab it. Cling to it. Pray for it. See, if we miss the grace of God, it's not because it's inaccessible to us, it's because we're not availing ourselves of it. God daily is saying, I love you and I pursue you and I accept you and I've forgiven you and you're part of my family and I've given you my Holy Spirit to indwell you and I'm present with you and I talk to you and you have my word, everything about who you are, I understand and know and I still love you. And our tendency, day in and day out, is to go, God, I know you've promised me those things, and I know you've given me those things, but I think I can do this on my own. I'm not convinced I need your help. I think I can get through this life through my own power, through my own skill sets, through my own desire, through my own pursuits. And when we do that, a root of bitterness springs up within us. To miss the grace of God is to allow that sinful, bitter root to take hold in your heart. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves today is this. What is the bowl of stew that you are potentially trading for your birthright? As the grace of God is extended to you, What is it in your life where you're going, God, no, I'd rather in this moment have my sin than have you?
I'd rather have the momentary pleasure right now than trusting that you can actually be sufficient for my day-to-day joy. I have a hard time, God, believing that you're so beautiful and so wonderful and so good that you could be more valuable to me in this moment than the sin that tempts me. In what ways are we despising the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in order in order to enjoy momentary satisfaction. And when we find ourselves having made that trade, the beauty and the wonder for the Christian is that Jesus still does not give up. That he still invites you to look to the cross, to remember the place at which Jesus took the penalty for that sin and that rebellion. That's what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 when he says this, Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And do you know what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2? He's saying that Jesus gave up his birthright. The birthright of a perfect an unbroken relationship with the Father. Eternal bliss, eternal fulfillment, perfectly self-sufficient, the Trinity in and of itself. Jesus enjoying the Father, the Father enjoying the Spirit, the Spirit enjoying Christ, the Spirit enjoying the Father, this beautiful, perfect relationship that Jesus Christ was experiencing. His birthright, as it were, the perfection that he was enjoying, he was willing to part with in order that you might receive a double portion of his grace so that you might be brought into his family, so that you might receive his portion through an inheritance of his righteousness. And that is the hope and the wonder that we observe when we come to the Lord's table. It's a realization that Jesus Christ left the wonder and the glory, the very presence of God the Father, that he emptied himself, that he became like us, and that he took your sin and mine onto himself at the cross, suffered brutally at the hands of mankind, and did it to give us what belonged to him. that through his death and ultimately his resurrection, he made the way for us to have new life in him, to be brought into his family, to receive what was exclusively his, and to receive it in abundance. And so as we come to this table, that's what we're observing. When we partake of the bread, we're being reminded of the body of Jesus Christ that was given on our behalf, that he held nothing back. And when we partake of the juice or the wine, we're reminded that the very perfect blood of Jesus Christ himself was spilt on our behalf so that we could rest in absolute assurance of our salvation and our hope in him and in him alone. That in his own grace, before we were ever born, before we could even try to do something to earn his salvation, And before we had even committed the sin that made his sacrifice necessary, he determined of his own good grace and mercy 
that he would set his love and his affection on a broken and rebellious people to adopt us into his family and to save us for his glory. And so what we're going to do is just take a couple minutes to be still and in that time just to be with the Lord, to enjoy the presence of the Lord, to consider the fact that we've been adopted into his family, that he loves us this much. And then when the music starts, you can come forward, come to the center where there will be bread distributed and then go to either side to receive the juice or the wine and then go around back to the outside to return to your seats. And then if you'll please wait, we'll take those elements together as we observe not only the communion that we have with God, but also with one another. So let's pray and we'll go to silence. God, we thank you that you love us and pursue us. We thank you that you're gracious to us. We thank you that though we were completely unable to earn our salvation, you did everything necessary to provide it for us. God, I thank you that you didn't leave us with the responsibility of earning our own salvation because we would inevitably have messed it up. But God, I thank you that we can stand assured of the fact that we've been adopted into your family, perfectly righteous and perfectly acceptable because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. So God, in our own hearts as we go throughout the course of our week, would your spirit prevent us from doing the things that we might be tempted to do? Would you remind us of these truths that we would not be willing to try to give up or momentarily forget the inheritance, the blessing, the birthright that we've been given and try to exchange the creation for the creator? God, help us to do in our own lives what is necessary to remember and to resolve ourselves to be reminded of the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the love of our eternal Father. And it's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.